0: Hello, and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behavior in a practical, fun, and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting, or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well. What tips do they have for you and I? and I quiz them about how they applied their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfill your potential. Hello, and welcome to Episode 93 of the Potential Psychology Podcast. I hope you're well and finding the rhythm of a new year. I know it's mid-February already, but seriously, it takes that long to find the rhythm of a new year, doesn't it? Or well, maybe that is just me. Anyway, speaking of years, I do have an admission to make. Today's guest interview with Professor Siobhan Banks was recorded almost a year ago on the 11th of March 2020, to be precise, the very day that the World Health Organization made the assessment that COVID 19 could be characterized as a pandemic due to the alarming levels of spread and severity and the alarming levels of inaction. And just days later, my home state of Victoria here in Australia declared a state of emergency and supermarket shelves were being emptied of basic supplies due to panic buying and major events were being cancelled. And unbeknownst to us at the time, schools were about to close. So in essence, the world was turning on its head And haven't we learned an amazing amount since then? What a year it's been. But of course, because of all of that, our plans to release this podcast interview got pushed way to the back burner and it has seriously taken close to a year for us to get back to where we were. But I'm so glad that we're here now because it is such a great discussion about sleep And the impact that a lack of sleep and shift work have on our task performance and daily activities and things like workplace safety and our general well-being. Before I introduce you to Siobhan and that interview, it's time, of course, to tell you a little bit about my three things for this episode. And to say a big thank you to those of you who have shared your three things with me. We have had some delightful responses on the socials with great book recommendations and the cool things you're reading, and some very real, very genuine and insightful ways in which you're seeking to fulfill your potential as well as great things that you're learning. So thank you for sharing. It really is lovely to see and I'm learning a lot about you as I share my three things too. So my three things for this episode, well, first up, I'm reading or dipping in and out of at least, it's not really a cover to cover situation because I'm doing it as part of my research for a lot of my work with clients. And it's a book called Positive Leadership, Strategies for Extraordinary Performance and well, that's one book, and the second one is Practicing Positive Leadership, Tools and Techniques That Create Extraordinary Results, and they're both written by Professor Kim Cameron, who is the co-founder of the Centre for Positive Organisations at the University of Michigan in the States, and both of these books explore four strategies that enable organisations and their people to flourish. And these are big or small or for profit or not for profit or community-based organisations, really any kind of organisation or system of people, really. And the four things are creating a positive climate, establishing positive relationships, developing positive communication and instilling positive meaning. And when we're talking about positive in this concept, it's really not about glossing over the troubles or challenges, you know, we all have those, particularly in any group or system of people. There's lots of troubles and challenges that come about, and we have to meet those head on. And it's not about everybody being overtly happy or chanting positive affirmations or anything like that positivity in a scientific context, certainly when it comes to the science of human behaviour and organisations, is about creating an environment and relationships and ways of communicating and systems in which we focus on what's working rather than what's not working. So our natural inclination is always to focus on what's not working, it's the way we're wired up. But in any of these ways of doing things, these ways of thinking about and working positively in human systems and organisations and workplaces, we're really finding ways to focus on what's working. So seeking ways to help individuals within organisations to thrive and to flourish, to be able to operate at their best, you know, through supporting networks, by creating positive energy and people having a real sense of meaning and purpose in their work. And it might sound Pollyanna-ish, I'm conscious that it does, but there are actually now plenty of practical ways to implement these ideas. Uh, lots of practical strategies and activities and ways of leading, ways of interacting, ways of managing people that help. And Kim Cameron and his colleagues have been researching these practices and their outcomes for a couple of decades now. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that they not only lead to improvements in organisational productivity and profitability and innovation and quality and customer loyalty, but also improved physiological health emotional well-being interpersonal relationships and personal growth and development so it's not being positive or creating a positive work environment to just produce results for organizations but it does do that it's also doing good for people at the same time and i personally believe and i hope you agree with me that that is a very admirable aim So that's the first thing, the thing I'm reading. My second thing is something I'm learning, and this is a shout out to all of the parents and carers who are standing on the sidelines while their charges start new things, new schools, new phases in their life or education, whether that's starting preschool or primary school or high school or daycare or whatever it might be because I have a child who's just started year seven, so high school, senior school. And while that's all very much about him and he is taking to it like a duck to water, I completely underestimated how much we parents also have to learn in this process. A new school means new online systems and new family schedules and uniforms and school rules and names and people. And it feels like we all have so many questions and we're all just learning a whole new way of doing things. It's exciting and I know we'll all adapt quickly enough. But right now, I feel like we're just on this steep learning curve and it's A little bit exhausting. (laughs) So if you're feeling a little worn out from all the new things that your child or family is doing right now, know that you're not alone and do make sure that you find the time to rest and recharge. And speaking of which, my third and final thing is something I'm doing to fulfill my potential and that's a return to regular yoga classes. So last year with the best of intentions and a concerted effort and a wonderful yoga studio, I did practice my yoga at home. But it was still hard to find a routine. And so now I'm back in studio classes and really trying to stick to a schedule of at least once a week. And so I guess how does this contribute to me fulfilling my potential? Well, glad you asked, because it has something to do with something that's called body intelligence. So your body, my body, all our bodies are almost always telling us what they need to cope with the stresses of everyday life. But not many of us are very good at listening to what our body is telling us. We tend to ignore the signals and symptoms and we press on through pain and tiredness and stress and anxiety and we self-medicate with a glass of wine or maybe something else and we push away the little niggles in favour of something that feels a bit more manageable or a bit more comfortable or a bit more instant paying attention to what's really going on and doing something about it. But of course, that doesn't help us in the long run. We really need to pay attention. We need to do something a little more in the moment. And for me, yoga is about improving that body intelligence. So my awareness of what my physical self is telling me about what it needs and then taking the small steps to act on those needs. So I guess it's kind of a training mindful awareness of my body, which just means that as well as getting the yoga in, I'm also more likely to better manage my posture at my desk and take walks when I feel like I've been sitting for too long and do stretches when I feel stiff and sore and to go to bed earlier when I feel I need the extra sleep. And of course, a healthy body means a healthy mind. So that's what I'm doing. Please let me know if you're doing something to maybe improve your body intelligence or you're doing something else to fulfill your potential and what you've learned, of course, and whether you have any great books or podcasts or viewing or other resource recommendations, you can tag them, pp3things, if you pop it on the socials, otherwise email me. And of course, watch out for our posts that we're publishing on the three things that I'm doing because we've had some wonderful comments and sharing on those as well. But right now, it's time to talk sleep with today's guest. My guest today is Professor Shavon Banks, researcher and the co-director of the Behaviour Brain Body Research Centre at the University of South Australia. And like me, Shavon loves sleep, But unlike me, she gets into the nitty-gritty of research into sleep, in particular, the impact of sleep deprivation and shift work on our psychological and physiological function. Siobhan's worked extensively with 24-7 industries such as healthcare, emergency services, transport and defence to help them manage fatigue in the workplace. Her research has attracted over $8 million in funding from government and industry. She has written over 100 publications on sleep and fatigue, and she's a member of the board of directors of the Sleep Health Foundation. Now, I know sleep and the effects of shift work in particular is of interest to many of our listeners because you've told me so, so I'm thrilled to have Siobhan here to answer some of our questions. Welcome, Siobhan. Thank you very much for having me. I do have lots of questions for you because this is something that sleep in itself has intrigued me for a long time and I know we got exponential amount of research compared to perhaps we were 10 years ago on sleep and then shift work is just an added complication. Before we get into that, can you give us a really quick summary of why sleep is important to our wellbeing and our function?
1: Yeah, it is just such an important part of our lives, so important for our health and really, we see it as part of a triad, really, with diet and exercise, that um, sleep is sort of that third structure that's just really, really important for our overall health and well-being. And, and as you said, there's been a real surge in research over the past sort of 10 or 15 years to try and understand why sleep is so important for our health and cognitive performance and certainly, some questions we're getting a little closer at, at you know answering, and some are still mysteries. So there still definitely are some some mysteries of sleep. But hopefully today we can have a bit of a chat about some of those things and make things a little bit easier to understand for everybody.
0: Absolutely. Are there kind of headline items you know with regard to? Because you talked about just in the intro there, I said that you're working on both the effects of sleep or sleep deprivation on our Psychological and physiological function, and they're kind of headline items that we all need to know about. You know what happens when we don't get enough sleep. Yeah,
1: probably the biggest thing is that everybody is different, and I know that kind of might sound a bit obvious, but it's especially these days where we're often given very singular messages from media around um, sleep and how much sleep we need. What we do know is that it is quite different and that it changes over the lifespan. So I think if there's something really to a big headline message is that everybody's a little bit different in how sleep loss might affect them and everybody is a little bit different in how much sleep they need. And this is important because it helps us understand when we hear those messages or you must get eight hours sleep a night helps us kind of perhaps feel a little less worried if we routinely get seven and we feel good or if we perhaps need nine to feel good. So I think that's, for me,
0: probably the big headline message. Okay. And is it that feeling good kind of element that is what we should use as our indicator as to whether as individuals we're getting an adequate amount of sleep? Yeah, it's so difficult because I suppose one
1: of the other things that um, it's so hard to introspect, isn't it, about our sleep? It's so hard to know, you know, was last night a good sleep or not? And I suppose that's why we've had such a big uptake in people using wearables to try and track their sleep. But I think it's the kind of thing that you know when you're, you're getting enough sleep over time. And people have a sense when something's not quite right. And it's when it's that not quite right is is when we'd say, look, go and see your GP so that you can talk to a sleep psychologist or a sleep physician about what might be some underlying conditions. But really, if you know, you know, perhaps if you've been on a on a vacation that's not one that's action packed and <laughs> but one where you're able to kind of perhaps laze about a little bit and and get a good sleep each night, you'll you'll sort of soon see that initially Your sleep is quite solid. You might have um, some very deep sleep nights initially, but as time passes and your sleep need kind of matches more your activity during the day, uh, you're able to get to that point where you're feeling quite good and you're getting a a more even amount of sleep. And that might end up being something around seven hours a night for you, or it might be a little bit more. But it is that that feeling of, do I feel good after
0: the sleep? Am I waking up feeling refreshed? Okay. So- as I often say on this podcast, one of my kind of personal philosophies around our well-being is a bit of a test and learn approach. So I guess that's what you're saying there, is it just kind of, yeah, when you get the opportunity, perhaps, you know, if life does calm down and holiday is probably a good example, just to pay attention to how much sleep you're getting, how you're feeling at the end, and maybe using that as a bit of an indicator as to how much would be the ideal amount of sleep for you. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So what are the impacts then on sleep deprivation? What happens when we're, and I'm particularly starting to think about, you know, shift work and perhaps even just those periods of life, like when there's a newborn baby in the house,
1: (laughs) when you just can't
0: get good regular sleep?
1: Yeah, and I think that's the thing you said. Regular—that's a really important part. So we all know that on occasion we might get less than ideal amount of sleep. We might be, you know, running along quite normally, getting good sleep, and then for whatever reason we have a couple of nights where we have a short amount of sleep, and you think, oh gosh, you know, I feel really weary the next day. I feel quite fatigued, but you don't necessarily have an overall huge decrement, say, in cognitive performance or. Or indeed, your health. You know, you might have a cup of coffee and, and that keeps you going. So it's really short periods of sleep loss when you're just getting a little bit less than you normally would sleep, quite normal and okay. And you'll just probably go to sleep a little bit earlier the, the, the subsequent nights. When you're up all night and you mm-hmm. completely lose a night of sleep, you really do feel it while you're awake through the night. When your body is is meant to be asleep, people do struggle very much cognitively, trying to stay on task. Um, we often see that reaction times slow, and that people really have a difficulty with kind of problem solving and decision making, those sorts of things. And sometimes they can even become a little bit more quick to irritate. So your moods can become a little bit more labile as well when you have those like total nights of sleep deprivation. But they're relatively easy to recover from. You just sleep if you're able to, sleep the next day. And especially if you're you know, a younger person, then you often wake up feeling quite good and able to continue as, as if you hadn't really had that sleep disruption. Now, if you're in a situation, as you've said, like shift work, for example, or you're a new parent where your sleep is disrupted night after night after night after night for quite a while, um, or indeed you're expected to work through the night, and try and sleep during the day where sleep is less than ideal. It's not an environment that's conducive for sleep, you know, bright light and lots more noise and those sorts of things. So sleeping during the day is hard. So when our sleep is chronically disrupted like that, or or indeed if you have a sleep disorder, that's where we can see that there is an impact on cognitive performance and then there's an impact on health. And these take a longer time to build up. If it's a shorter period, so there's interesting research to show that if you perhaps restrict your sleep during the week but you catch up on the weekend, that there is benefits for health, so kind of getting those recovery sleeps in between. If it's on longer term, we do see that there is a little bit of a, a carry-on effect, and that's what we think is is why we see um, relationships between short sleep And other things like cardiovascular disease and diabetes and those sorts of things. So for people who are chronically getting less sleep, their risk for developing those chronic diseases is higher. So we do see this sort of longer term impact when you're in that
0: state of short sleep for a very long time. Okay. And when you say a very long time, are we talking sort of years, decades, somewhere in between?
1: Yeah, that magic number is hard. You know, the studies that we're able to do in the laboratory are obviously short, but we do know from these cohort studies, the studies out in the community where we see these relationships after controlling for everything else, things like, you know, smoking and diet and that kind of thing. We do see that it, the risk is just higher if you're longer term sleeping short. And I know that doesn't quite answer your question, but we don't really know, for example, mm-hmm. no, no. If it's just a few months or indeed if it's a few years. But we definitely see that there's a, a risk of the short sleep associated with those chronic conditions.
0: Okay. So as a kind of general rule, and I know it's very hard <laughs> with science to kind of make these yeah. sorts of statements, but it sounds like if we're sort of getting from a listener's point of view, if it's not to do with your work patterns and shift work, and if you've got young babies or there's just something that's disruptive, then you know, you should be able to get back on track without any long-term ill effects, hopefully. If you're dealing perhaps with a sleep disorder, getting that addressed is probably going to be important if you want to kind of reduce the likelihood of some of these long-term health effects.
1: Yeah. So, you know, for things like, you know, young children, where obviously it's quite chronically disrupted sleep for, you know, a few years. What we see is that certainly people might find that their um, cognitive performance is a little bit affected. They find it harder to focus and those kinds of things. They might feel a little sleepy. But when you get back on track, as you have suggested, with kind of a more normal sleep pattern afterwards, there does seem to be the ability to sort of recover or at least it looks like perhaps your risk is less if you then go back into a more typical um, sleep pattern. But you're right, if if you have a sleep disorder or something more chronic, it, it would be advisable to get it addressed. So that brings me then to people
0: for whom work creates sleep issues. So as you know, I mentioned in the, the sorts of industries that you've worked with, emergency services, the healthcare system, a lot of people in manufacturing, you know, people whose jobs require them to work patterns of shift work. What do we know? What do you advise to organizations around how we kind of mitigate some of this risk for these people?
1: Yeah, it's a really important thing. And part of it is, as you said, the, the companies understanding that these risks do exist and and making them a priority to address and also as well for the individual workers to also get some idea of the things that they can do to also help themselves um, so that we can kind of come at it from these multiple kind of pathways. Obviously, um, there are many, many people and it's and, you know, with our 24-7 life, we're needing to have people work around the clock and some of those, you know, Fantastic people are absolutely vital. There, there's no way that we our society would be able to function without them. And so it's helping the big companies realize the ways that we can better structure um, shift schedules to allow for that recovery sleep that we talked about in between. It's about making sure that there's adequate rest facilities for people when on Night shifts and those sorts of things that enable people to, you know, nap if they are able to or take breaks to break up that work and also to help the individuals understand perhaps the best ways to take caffeine to help their alertness, uh, the best ways to prepare for shifts and to rest in between that sort of thing to be able to make sure that we're having a workforce that is healthy and safe. Because safety is an issue, isn't it, here? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, there are all sorts of impacts that can happen in the workplace, whether it be due to an error, for example, if you were talking about in manufacturing, that could cause an injury, right the way through to, you know, more catastrophic kind of incidents where we know that fatigue, for example, has played a role in some aeroplane crashes or incidents so we know that in these high risk environments that there can be small errors that can impact even just the productivity of the work environment but also the safety of of individuals that are having to work through the night or work on some of these very long schedules yeah
0: that was something i think that for a long time they hadn't really given much thought to was the impact because if you as you say if, if we're not really designed to be awake during the nighttime hours, during those dark hours, and it can lead to dips in concentration and, you know, some of those cognitive capabilities, then obviously we are putting individuals a little at risk somewhere on that spectrum that you've just explained. And then there's going to be organisational and and industry-wide impacts too, is there? Because I know for you know, shift patterns has been something that different organisations, different industries have looked at over the years, you know, what sort of on-off type patterns is it better to do long ones, short ones, you know, however many days on, however many days off. From a sleep point of view, is there a, a better shift pattern?
1: Yes, there is. So, when you're thinking about the sleep and the placement of sleep, It's also important to think about your circadian rhythms a little bit. And so that's what, when we sort of think about the fact that we're more biologically primed to sleep at night and not during the day, if we're able to place our sleep in the best possible places, I suppose, in relation to that, and also to take into consideration our natural um, tendency to shift when exposed to light at night. So this is the other, this is a slightly more complex kind of component of it. But for those people who have experienced jet lag, when you effectively are traveling to a country or or a place, so for example, from Adelaide or Sydney, traveling to Perth, it's essentially like staying up later. And our bodies more naturally uh, find it easy for most people to stay up later and sleep in a little bit. And so if we have shift schedules that do follow a similar kind of pattern, so for example, gradually move through from say a day or a morning to a day to a night type shift and then some time off, that is a more natural progression and an easier one for the body to cope with. But there's some interesting research that's being done to kind of uh, look at ways that if you move through these shifts quite quickly, is it better to adapt or not adapt to the shifts? And so this is one of the big kind of controversies in our field at the moment. Some people would say if you cycle through the shifts, they do a a morning, afternoon or day shift, and night shift quite quickly in succession rather than multiple ones of those in a row, then you're not really adapting and you're still able to sleep at your normal times on your days off. Whereas other people would say, no, it's much better to have people on shifts for several days. So, for example, being uh, on night shift uh, for a number of days, and then that means that you've adapted, possibly, and so that makes your work on the shift better. There are downsides to all of these things. Typically, when people are working nights, when they when they come home, obviously they want to be around their family. And so life tends to be still a daytime occupation for them in the sense that they don't become Mm. fully just flipped night people. So because of the fact that we're dealing with a workplace and still interacting with life, there are these kinds of dualities that need to be taken in consideration. And I think that's where people themselves, then when they learn about the importance of sleep and a little bit about sleep science, what they can do to help manage fatigue for themselves.
0: Yeah, that's... You're saying the science just doesn't know. We just don't know yet whether that kind of cycling quickly through a series of different shift patterns, the day, afternoon, night time, and therefore kind of almost like not ever convincing your body that something's changed, <laughs> whether that's the better way to do it or whether that kind of more gradual, you know, several days, several afternoons, several night shifts. We just don't know the answer to that yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some data, but it, it really also, I suppose comes, a, it's that individual differences issue comes up again that, you know, I mentioned when we first started, some individual preferences in there, um, some individual biology, and then what suits the workplace. So, there are these number of constraints that mm-hmm. we might understand the, uh, some of the aspects of the biology, but for whatever reason, in that emergency service environment, work just has to continue. And so, that's where some of the more on-shift solutions might um, be beneficial to help individuals as well.
0: Okay, so like most things that pertain to human beings, it's complicated (laughs) and there's (laughs) lots of different, as you say, you know, we're we're looking at a number of different factors here, aren't we? We're looking at, you know, individual difference and and individual level needs. We're looking at industry-wide needs. We're looking at the nature of what the community needs from these organisations and industries. We're looking at what the organisation needs in terms of, you know, just the logistics of shifts and rosters and how work gets done. So I'm intrigued. It's something I hadn't really thought about or certainly hadn't read about this kind of on shift type strategy. So the napping, what about things like caffeine? Where does that kind of fit in?
1: Yeah. So obviously we, everybody pretty much uses caffeine in some form, uh, whether that be chocolate through to coffee, teas, just about everybody would consume some sort of caffeine and we can use it in quite strategic ways on shift to improve alertness, for example. What we're still trying to kind of get a good handle on is how then more long-term use might affect health. And so we've got, again, some studies saying that there are sort of negative impacts of, of caffeine use and some more positive or neutral what we do definitely see is that if too much caffeine is consumed while you're awake, it can impair your sleep unless you're just very, very sleep deprived. And so, you know, we can also use caffeine quite strategically on shift. So if we're thinking of it, you know, because it's such a ubiquitous Drug, I suppose you can you can put it in that class. But you know, people when we ask them about what they do on shift, and people always talk about, "Well, I have a coffee, or I have some chocolate, or I really like my green tea." All of those things have caffeine in them, but we can use it strategically. What's a little bit more unknown is about the sort of health effects. We know that it really improves cognition and alertness, but we're unsure more about the sort of long term health effects and whether it sort of is a neutral that has sort of a neutral effect or whether it's more of a a negative effect, what we do really know is that if you have too much caffeine when you're awake, it makes it really hard to go to sleep unless unless you're very, very sleep deprived. So if you're Mm. one of those amazing bush firefighters who were working ridiculously long hours to help keep us safe, they would have been working such long hours that the caffeine they consumed, if they did, would have been helping keep them alert and and safe probably wouldn't have really affected their sleep because they were so sleep deprived. But on a regular kind of situation where people are trying to get as much recovery sleep as possible when they get home from shift, it's really important to think about the optimal times to consume the caffeine and what is going to help them basically in their drive home from work. So some of our research that we're trying to do at the moment is really looking at those Um, factors where we can give the best evidence-based advice to workers about when to have caffeine, when to have naps, how to combine caffeine and naps, and also how late to sort of have coffee in the night shift before it might affect your sleep. And so, these kinds of questions might seem very straightforward, but when you look at the literature, it can be a bit confused for, for companies to try and work out the best guidelines. So that's what we're about doing at the moment, trying to get really good evidence to provide workers with that
0: information they need to make the best choices. So it's very much a work in progress. It is, you know, shift work's been around for a long time. Is it that? We didn't have the technology to start getting into the nitty gritty of some of these impacts or was it just not a popular research area? I feel the science is a little behind the experience, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and you're absolutely
1: right. I mean, you know, there's been shift work for a very long time, or at least people having to be awake while others are asleep, keeping watch or, or making sure that things are, are going okay. And certainly, we have much more 24-7 work now than we used to, and it's increasing. So, I think there's some of that. But also, I think it's a realisation over the last 20 years or so that there are these significant health impacts and safety impacts. And, you know, there have been, as I mentioned before, there's been a number of large industrial incidents that have been attributed to fatigue or poor work practices that have, you know, fatigue as a component. And they can kind of see that there's a real need to perhaps investigate this further and look into it. So it's a, it's been a growing area over the last sort of 20 or 30 years. Um, but really now I think with the fact that so many, people are shift workers or work irregular hours outside the nine to five, That now the question is really coming up of like, well, what can I do to improve my health and
0: wellbeing? And is this something that, because, I mean, we've talked about sort of, I suppose, fairly conventional shift work in some of those industries that have and have had a need to run that kind of 24-7 schedule. With changes in technology, it's much easier now for us to work globally from our own home base. Is that starting to have an impact on people's sleep patterns overall, do you think?
1: Oh, I think absolutely. And it's not really being researched. I think it's a huge area that just as you've pointed out is is a relatively new one this sort of interconnectedness that we now have from our homes is a fairly recent uh, phenomenon and one that we're really grappling with. We've got some interesting projects that we're trying to start up about looking very much at various different industries and and how people take work home um, and how that impacts on their sleep. I mean, I know certainly myself my little ones, you know, go to bed, and I go back to the computer and and work in an evening. And sometimes that means I'm pushing my sleep much later than I probably should be. Whereas once upon a time, once you left the office, that was it; you couldn't keep working. So it's going to have, I think, a big factor in a lot of and affecting a lot of people's sleep, a lot of people's stress. Connected to emails and just access to information in the evening, particularly, you know, at times like this where we are bombarded with information from around the world, they can not necessarily impact you, might be going to bed at at a good time, but you're unable to sleep because you're worrying about things. So I think that. The technologies have quite a broad range impact that we're only just starting to get a handle on and I think it's a really important one for industry and companies to be thinking about not just what happens at the workplace but what's happening at home for a lot of their workers as well and and how to help people switch off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As you're saying that it brought to mind, I ran a session for uh, YouTubers. So some of the YouTube creators who have large audiences, and these are Australian based individuals, a a lot of young people, it's actually a lot of different age groups. And one of the things that they spoke about was the fact that for a lot of them, their audience is in America. And the demand for content on YouTube is such that these guys were getting up at kind of stupid o'clock in order to publish content or get live feed content out there for an American audience or largely American audience. And the impact that that was having on their sleep, which was something I'd never given any thought to. So there's a little population (laughs) to study there.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think there is just more and more of people working remotely, so working from home for other countries overseas overseas, we see that there are multinational companies you know they might have a home base in sweden but they have workers here that have to join meetings and those sorts of things and so it's affecting their their usual kind of work day so effectively they're becoming shift workers when their work really isn't defined that way, so I think it's a it's a really interesting area, and I would say really again shows how we need to get more information out there about sleep, circadian rhythms, and what people can do to help look after themselves. Because I think people armed with information will make a lot better choices, but it's not that information isn't really kind of getting out there to to everybody. And I know there's a lot of mixed messages in the media as well about sleep. So yeah, it's kind of our mission to help get that good evidence-based information out there to
0: people. So Siobhan, where do people go? I mean, I know I've had questions from listeners who are in this position that you're talking about. And I think, as you say, you know, with this individual difference element in there, and given that we've still got a lot we don't know yet, you know, people just paying attention to how do I look after myself in this circumstance? So some of the things that were raised from listeners were things like timing of exercise, you know, when do I fit it in? When should I be timing meals and snacks? How do I deal with the night shift hangover and that kind of just feeling headachy and, and icky afterwards? Where, where should people go to be able to find the best evidence-based information for their own personal use? Yeah,
1: fantastic question because the you know internet is filled with some good information and some not so good information. The Sleep Health Foundation website, the Australian Sleep Health Foundation, has a fantastic, resource of fact sheets. And these are all fact sheets that are written by sleep professionals and sleep experts. And they've been written in such a way so that they're very easy to understand for a general audience. So obviously, there are lots of academic papers out there that people can get access to, but sometimes the information is hard to kind of interpret and understand. The Sleep Health Foundation has done a lot of work to take that work and put it in a form that's a lot easier for people to understand. And they have all sorts of things on there. There's a lot about different kinds of sleep disorders and shift work and melatonin and caffeine, a little bit about technology use. And certainly if there's a particular area like, for example, some of those timing issues, those are the sorts of things that if there isn't a lot of information that the Sleep Health Foundation can provide right now, they're the kind of body that will go ahead and, if they see a need, fill that with a new fact sheet. So, certainly, if people can't find what they're after on the Sleep Health Foundation website, I would suggest they contact them and ask for some of that information. Um, They're a really, really fantastic um, community body helping
0: educate about sleep. Fantastic. That sounds like an excellent resource. And I think that's probably, you know, I think even just our conversation today about the fact that a lot of this research is in a a burgeoning area. It's new. We haven't, just haven't looked at it. So, you know, there's clearly a need from the people who are experiencing some of these challenges around their sleep and, you know, having somebody, a body like the Australian National Sleep Foundation being able to kind of do the interpretation, you know, grab the science as it comes to life, do the interpretation and get that information out there in a reliable way is is fantastic.
1: And I think it's reassuring for people to know that it comes from a very good source.
0: Yeah. Siobhan, I know you have to go. I've got lots of other questions that I would still ask you, but I realize that you're on a time schedule. So, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I'm quite sure that we've at least given our listeners a little bit of insight into the state of the science of sleep. And I think those really key points about just paying attention to our individual needs and what's going on for us and then working with that as a starting point.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me today. Thank you, Siobhan.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that conversation with Professor Siobhan Banks with me. I hope it's given you something to think about in relation to your sleep. We have, of course, popped all of Siobhan's details and links to the resources that she's mentioned in the show notes for this episode. And we've also included a link to a past interview with Dr. Kate Sprecher, also on the topic of sleep. And if you struggle with getting good sleep for any reason, I, like Siobhan, encourage you to check out the resources from the National Sleep Foundation or contact a sleep clinic in your local area as good sleep really is fundamental to success and well-being in so many areas of our life. Okay a little update on some behind the scenes here at PPHQ before we leave you for this episode. If you're a long time listener, you might remember an interview that I did with Dinah Rowe and Mia Northrup from Life Admin Life Hacks about getting your life admin sorted for improved wellbeing. well being Well... Turnabout is fair play and I had the joy of being interviewed by Dinah and Mia for their Life Admin Life Hacks podcast and that interview has just gone live. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about me and motivation and personality and how it all affects our approach to our life admin, you might like to check that out. We've included a link in the show notes for this episode. So what do we have for you next week Well, we've rearranged things again? And it's next week that I will be chatting to Cass Dunn, fellow Australian psychologist and host of the Crappy to Happy podcast, which consistently ranks in the top five health and wellbeing podcasts on Apple Podcasts and has done so since its launch some years ago now. Cass is also the author of the Crappy to Happy series of books. There's Crappy to Happy, the original, Crappy to Happy, Love What You Do, which is about finding meaning, purpose and happiness at work, and the upcoming Crappy to Happy, Love Who You're With, Simple Steps to Build Stronger Relationships. And Cass and I are colleagues and we're also friends, and she has been a guest on the show before. She's delightful, super easy to talk to, full of great ideas, and is really excellent at making psychology simple and accessible so this will be a great fun and informative conversation so stay tuned for that if you don't already subscribe to the show hit subscribe or follow depending on where you listen to your podcasts and that episode with Cass Dunn will arrive in your listening feed as soon as it drops of course along with all our others but until then stay safe go well take small steps to fulfill your potential and I look forward to seeing you soon